The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, it's a joy to settle back into the, uh, the normal rhythms of, uh, of ministry since Jennifer and I have returned from our trip. But as we're settling uh, back into ministry, one of the main questions that I've been hearing is, when are we getting back to Daniel? <laughs> I've even had some of our children here coming up to me and asking me, when are we, when are we getting back to Daniel? I even heard that, uh, that one child drew a threw a, a frowny face in his notebook when he heard I wasn't going to Daniel again. He's like, another week? I, I want to get back to Daniel again. I just, I just want to let you know that Daniel is on his way, and uh, by God's grace, we'll return to Daniel soon. But this week is the week of Thanksgiving, and uh, while we would be thankful to get back to Daniel, I thought it would be appropriate to address a different text than the, the beast of Daniel chapter 7, so uh, we won't do that for, uh, for Thanksgiving Sunday. Uh, but this week, um, just as an introduction, I've been reading through a book by Richard Baxter, a Puritan, called The, Everlast- the Saints' Everlasting Rest. The Saints' Everlasting Rest. Uh, Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor who ministered in England during a time when England was being torn apart by civil war uh, from 1642 to 1651 is the time of that civil war. Baxter was actually present uh, to witness the first physical conflict in that war. He was also present for the first full battle where he saw, in his own words, about a thousand dead bodies in the field between the two forces, and I suppose many buried before. In 1645, he signed up to be an army chaplain and traveled across the country where he observed days of common suffering. And he says, nothing appears to our sight but ruin, families ruined, Congregations ruined, structures ruined, cities ruined, country ruined, court ruined, and kingdoms ruined. In this fight, a dear friend falls down by me. Another battle, a precious Christian is brought home wounded or dead. Scarcely a month, hardly a week without the sight or the noise of war. And then to add to that, in 1647, as winter reached its coldest point, his nose started to bleed. And in the medical wisdom of his day, they believed that his nosebleed represented an excess of blood, and they opened four veins on his body, and the drastic loss of blood nearly killed him. He also writes, I was never yet so nearly low, and if I see your face no more in the flesh, farewell till eternity. And at the age of 31, he wrote what he intended to be his funeral sermon, But it grew over time and became 853 pages and 350,000 words. He says, Far from home, cast into extreme languishing by the sudden loss of about a gallon of blood, I bent my thoughts on my everlasting rest. And his hope became a reason for gratitude and thanksgiving. He described the world that he was in as a howling wilderness, most of its inhabitants as hideous monsters. He described the intense physical pain that he had as a bewildering variety of physical ailments. Described pain in his eyes, his teeth, his jaws, his joints, his bowels, his back, his sides, his head, his thighs. 
He says, I can scarcely remember two hours together from the past two years when I had been free from pain. And he describes the loss of his friends and his family as ruinous. But even when happiness is thin on the ground, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that's what he wrote about. That there is an everlasting rest for the people of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, lets us know that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, lets us know that we have a better country, and we can be thankful as Christians that we have a guaranteed hope. And that's important to remind us of because this last year has been so difficult for so many of us. Some of us have experienced the deep pain and heartache of our own children, grandchildren, who aren't walking with the Lord. I've spoken to many of you who know that personally. Some of us have experienced betrayal and slander and abuse from those that we trusted in the most. Trusted leaders, even spouses. Some of us have experienced severe and chronic debilitating pain, and it often seems like there are no answers, no comfort, no relief. Then we've experienced in our own church what, what seems to me to be a, a disproportionate amount of deaths for the size of a congregation as ours. We've experienced a tremendous amount of death over this past year for such a small congregation, experienced so much death, parents, children, spouses, siblings. I can't remember how many memorial services I've attended this year, but I've been on both sides, both in the pulpit and in the pew. And I just wanted to remind us that on this Lord's Day, that in spite of disappointment, disaster, disease, and even death, that we have a living hope. We have a living hope. And we can remain a thankful people, and we can greatly rejoice. And I know we've been there recently, but see if you can't Hear this from a fresh perspective. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. The original audience that would have received this book would have been hanging on every word because this book is a manual for suffering saints, and they were in the midst of suffering. And if you're anything like me, you know, when you get a, a new device, you know, maybe it's a television, a printer, you know, some new device. You know, all you do is look at the manual to see how do you turn it on and get started and you put the manual away. But then when problems arise, all of a sudden that manual becomes like the most important book in the house. Like now I've got trouble in my life. I've got trouble here. Like I've got to figure out how does this work? And that's like First Peter. When you're, when you're going through trouble, all of a sudden it's like, where was that book again? You know, let, let me unwrap it out of the plastic and take a look at this again because I am suffering. I'm going through trouble right now, and I need this book. That's the book of 1 Peter. Let's take a look at chapter 1, starting at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he closes with this, in this you greatly rejoice. Let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, uh, Lord, today, this Lord's Day, and 
Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. And Father, that you would bring comfort. And Father, even more than comfort, Lord, that you would bring joy. That there would be rejoicing, that there would be thanksgiving, that there would be gratitude from our hearts. Even in the midst of difficulty. Father, that there is a living hope that we have as believers. Help us to hold on to this hope. Help us to understand this hope. Help us to rejoice in this hope, which is a guarantee for us. And Father, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The theme of these verses is blessing the God of our great salvation. And it's found right there at the beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Blessed be God. The specific uh, Greek word that's translated blessed here is used eight times in the entire New Testament, and it's always used for God, always for blessing God. It's the word uh, eulogetas in, uh, in Greek. Our English word eulogy comes from this same word, a related word here, which means to speak well of somebody. You give a eulogy, you're speaking well of somebody. And God is somebody who should always be spoken well of. There's always something good to say about God. And when the, the word blessing is used in Scripture as an adjective or as a description, it's describing the blessed one. It's only referring to God because there's nothing but good to say about our God. He's called the blessed one in Mark chapter 14 and verse 61. You can just say he's the blessed. He's the blessed one. And it's our duty and our joy to speak well of and to celebrate this great God. And there's a primary reason for blessing God that's given in First Peter. Look at it again. In verse 3, what's the primary reason? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. God has caused us to be born again. Literally, he begot us again. It's a reference to the activity of God the Father in giving us new life. Often when we think about regeneration, we think about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and that's right to think about the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives life, John 6 and verse 63. But our new birth was initiated by the will of God the Father. In James 1 and verse 18, it says, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. So it's by His will, His initiation, that you were brought to life. And the point that Peter makes is this, that whoever is responsible for the initiation of this new life, whoever's given you this new life, is worthy of being blessed. Bless the one who has given you life. He is worthy of praise. And there's at least five aspects of this new life that we should bless God for. Why should we bless God for this new life? Because our new life is undeserved, it's guaranteed, it's unearned, it's reserved, and it's protected. Number one, our new life is undeserved. Look again at verse three. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, mercy, it's undeserved. It's not because you've done anything that was worthy of this gift. It's undeserved. His mercy, that word mercy, Elias, emphasizes our need. It's to have pity on, to have compassion on. God had pity on you and gave you life. It's not because you did anything worthy of him taking, a, taking notice of you. You didn't do anything impressive. It's because he had pity on you. And he reaches to you in his compassion. Because of sin, we were completely ruined. Completely ruined by the fall. Spiritually bankrupt, we needed a benefactor. Spiritually naked, we needed to be clothed. Spiritually orphans, we needed to be adopted. 
Spiritually, we were blind, we needed sight. We were spiritually sick, we needed a physician. And we were spiritually dead, we needed resurrection. We needed to be brought to life. Our ruin was so great that the mercy had to be greater. (laughs) Mercy had to be greater. The Puritan author Stephen Charnock said that we needed a universal change that was as large in renewing us as sin was in defacing us. Have you realized that you needed abundant mercy? Have you realized that? Have you recognized your desperate condition? As Revelation 3 verse 17 says, you say that I'm rich, that you've become wealthy, you have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's what you are. You have nothing to offer to God. And the next verse says, I advise to you, come and buy from me gold so that you may be refined. You need to come to me so that you can see. You need to come to me so that your nakedness can be clothed. You have nothing. And what happens when a sinner turns to Christ is he's given everything. He's made rich, he's clothed, he's given sight. And it's not on the basis of the deeds which we have done. We heard that earlier. But it's according to his mercy. And if you've received mercy, do you understand the kind of praise that should be given to God because of that? (laughs) You didn't deserve it. It's undeserved. We're redeemed through his infinite mercy. But not only in, in this life, but not only in this life is this undeserved It's also in the life to come. We'll we'll never deserve it. (laughs) We'll never deserve it. This is an undeserved mercy from God that we've been given this life. It's not only undeserved, it's also guaranteed. Look at verse 3 again. It says, uh, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope. That that word hope doesn't communicate to us in English a guarantee, uh, but it did in Greek. When we use the word hope, we often speak of something that, you know, we just hope for. I'm just kind of wishing, you know, I'm wishing on a star or something like that. You know, we, we hope so, you know, keep hope alive kind of hope. But the kind of hope that Peter refers to is a certain expectation. I know that this will happen. It's a guarantee. So I'm anticipating it because I know it's going to happen. So I'm looking forward to it. That's the kind of hope that we have. It's an expectancy. There's no uncertainty about it. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, it says, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. It's certain. It's guaranteed. Sure and steadfast. One which enters within the veil. And this guarantee will last as long as our Savior does. And our Savior lives forever. <laughs> our Savior lives forever to guarantee us our hope. Hebrews seven twenty-five says, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's a a hope that's guaranteed, and our Savior always lives to guarantee us our hope. He's able to save forever because he lives forever. John 14 and verse 19, he says, Because I live, you will live also. My, my, My life is your life. Because I live, you live. And there's nobody that's taken my life. Revelation 4 and verse 9 says, The living creatures will give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. He always lives to guarantee our hope. It's a guarantee that lasts forever because Jesus lives forever. And he conquered death. The resurrection of Jesus gives us this living hope, which is exactly what verse 3 says. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who fall asleep. In ancient Israel, uh, they would give their, their first fruits as an offering to God. And, and what that would be would be uh, really a, a, a trust in the Lord that if I'm going to give you the first crop that comes up, that you're going to provide for me later on. I'm, I'm giving you the first, and I'm trusting you for, for what comes afterwards. But I'm giving the first to you. And Jesus Christ was the first fruits, guaranteeing that there would be more to come. There's more after me. He rises, and you're going to rise as well. It's a guarantee of our resurrection. So we have this a hope-filled certainty, a faith with expectancy. It's a glorious anticipation of what's to come. Do you bless God that your hope is guaranteed? That the new life that I have is a guarantee to me? It's, it's a certainty? I'm not wishing, I'm not hoping. It's in the sense that we talk about hope, but it's a certain anticipation. I remember the, the day after I, I came to know the Lord, I just wanted to talk to everybody moving. It's just like, I, I came to know Jesus, I wanted to talk to everybody moving. And what excited me so much is that I now know that I'm going to heaven. It's, it's a certainty. And it was just bubbling over, just so excited. I'm going to heaven and I know it. Because Jesus is the one who gives us hope. Do you bless God for the guarantee of your future redemption? We need to bless God for this. We need to speak well of God. Our new life is undeserved. It's guaranteed. Number three, it's unearned. Look at verse four. It says to obtain an inheritance. So we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. And you know what an inheritance is. It's something that you don't earn. Something that you don't buy. It's something that you receive as a gift because of the family that you were born into. And what family are we born into? Just let us know what family we're born into. It's God the Father, who according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again. We've been born into the family of God. And this is where we get our inheritance from. Not because we've done anything to earn it, because we've been born into it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who caused us to be born again. In John 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. You were born into God's family, and because you belong to God's family, you've been included in this inheritance. Your name is in the will. That word inheritance means that which has been received by lot or by portion. The Greek word here, clay, Nomia was uh, frequently used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak about that which was promised to Israel, the land that was given to Israel. And in a similar way, we've been promised a heavenly inheritance. And are you ready for this? Look at verse 4. It says, This inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And it's been reserved. <laughs> that, that's the kind of inheritance that we have. Imperishable. What does that mean? It means the vitality of this kingdom will never be destroyed. The, the word imperishable is a, is a word that means uh, something that cannot decay. It cannot dissolve. It's something that the passage of time will never affect. Because you know the passage of time and, you know, the passage of time. But <laughs> The passage of time will not affect it. <laughs> passage of time will not affect it. It doesn't wear out with use. It cannot perish. It can't be lost. 
And the root verb of this adjective was sometimes used for, for an army that decimated a city. It can't be conquered. And the, the word covers that which is lost to natural means or by violent means. It can't be, it can't be destroyed. It's imperishable. But the inheritance that we're promised will never be destroyed or taken away. Imperishable. Number two, it's also undefiled. The purity of this kingdom will never be defiled. The word undefiled speaks about that which can't be stained, can't be polluted. To defile means to discolor something by, by staining it. And it's consistently used in the scripture for the stain of sin. Sin will not contaminate this inheritance. It, it's, it's sin that pollutes us. But sin will no longer pollute this new inheritance. Our heavenly inheritance is protected. Will our heavenly inheritance ever be defiled, polluted by sin in the future? Absolutely not. Sometimes people ask, you know, could, could we ever fall from heaven? You know, there was a fall from heaven before. Could there be a fall from heaven again? You know, Satan and the angels fell. Could we ever fall from heaven? And the word is absolutely not. Revelation 21 and 27 says, Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination, lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It won't be contaminated. Nothing unclean will ever enter into this inheritance. The purity of this heavenly kingdom will never be polluted again. We sing about it in the song. There, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. One of the lines says, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. <laughs> There's coming a time when we will sin no more. We'll be brought into this heavenly inheritance and never be polluted by the stain of sin. No sin will ever be allowed into this heavenly kingdom and the bars of heaven will keep it out. This kingdom is imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade. The beauty of this kingdom will never be defaced. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has provided a kingdom that will not be marred, defaced, never lose its beauty, its wonder. You know, there's no sign in heaven that says, pardon our mess. Pardon our deaths, we're doing construction. It's, it, it's always beautiful. It remains beautiful. The word for fade away is actually a word that was used for the, the fading beauty of flowers that withered away. You know, in ancient times, you know, athletes would receive a crown, a, a laurel wreath, and eventually that laurel wreath would fade away. That beauty of that wreath would fade away. You know, just like some of you chop down a tree and put it in your house, and eventually you got to throw it to the curb. Why? Because the beauty will fade away. But that's not going to happen with this inheritance that we have in heaven. That's what's been provided for us. It's something that will never turn. Can we speak well of God because of that? Because he's given us an inheritance that's been provided for us that will never turn, never tarnish, never be polluted. It's undeserved. It's guaranteed. It's unearned. And also it's reserved. Look at verse 4. Reserved in heaven for you. Your, your reservation has already been made. There's no need to call in for it. Your, your table's already waiting. <laughs> Verse 5 says that our salvation is ready to be revealed. It's ready. It's prepared. And what does Peter mean when he says that it's reserved in heaven for us? What he means to say is that it's not going any bit anywhere. Nobody can touch it. The, the word for reserved, tereo, was actually a word that was used for guarding a prisoner. Just, just a few examples in Matthew 27. It spoke about the soldiers who were around Christ for his crucifixion. 
They were guarding him. They were keeping watch over him. Why? To make sure it's not going anywhere. I'm going to make sure this body doesn't go anywhere. They were were guarding it. Same word was used in uh, Acts 12 when Peter was being kept in prison. They, they They were watching him to make sure that he didn't leave. He wasn't getting out. He's not going to be taken away. And that's the same idea of our inheritance, that it's reserved for us. It's protected for us. The God is keeping watch over it, guard over it. It's not going anywhere. And here Peter changes the pronoun to make this even more personal. You know, before he's talked about what God has done for us, for us, for us. And now he talks about this inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. <laughs> he makes it personal. This is, this is my personal inheritance. It's got my name on it. It's reserved for me. And this future aspect of our present salvation is guaranteed. What's in the future is now guaranteed. It's guaranteed right now. I love what uh, Romans 5, actually, why don't you flip over there real quick. Romans chapter 5. Just to think a little bit more about this inheritance that we have. Take a look at verse 9. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. I'll start at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Think about that. (laughs) This this is what God did when you were a sinner. What do you think now he's going to do that you're a saint? (laughs) It's while you were sinners, Christ died. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. It's not going anywhere. You have been protected, sealed by God, reserved for that day of redemption. If He he died for you while you were a sinner, what do you think that He's going to do now that you've been justified? Of course He's going to protect you. Of course He's going to keep you. We're protected, reserved for that final day. And our new life is protected for us. Look at verse 5, back in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, it's reserved in heaven for you, verse 4. For you, who are the you? The you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This, this right here is a double protection that's offered. Double protection. It, it's one thing to say that your inheritance is secure, but it's another thing to say that you are secure for your inheritance. Do you get that? It's a double protection. Not only is your inheritance secure, but you are secure to reach your inheritance. I've heard of people who died a week before their retirement. <laughs> you know, here they are ready to enter into this inheritance. You know, they've been working up all their life to benefit from their retirement, and then they die right before they enter into retirement. Or die not too long after they enter into retirement. You know, I know that it's there for me, but how do I know that I'm going to be there? That's the question. And this is the question that is answered for us. You are protected for that inheritance. There's no need to worry about missing out. That's what some of the people in uh, Thessalonica were starting to wonder about. You know, what about the people who've died? Are they going to be able to receive of this kingdom of, of Christ? I mean, Christ hasn't come back yet, and I know that he's coming back to receive his own and, you know, to bring the kingdom. Are, are, are these people who've died going to miss this kingdom? And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, 
about those who are asleep, those who've died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Don't worry, they're not going to miss out on the kingdom. Everybody's going to be here. Everybody's going to receive their inheritance. Nobody's going to miss out. The word that's used there is a, a military term, to be shielded, to be guarded, to be kept. And it's a perfect passive participle, which may not mean a whole lot to you. I know, I know some of you had your devotions this morning on the perfect passive participle, right? But the perfect tense means that it's something that happened in the past and still has ongoing effects up until the present day. It's happened in the past and it's continuing until today. And the passive means that I don't do it to myself, somebody else does it for me. So it's God who is keeping me, protecting me. It's from the outside. God is doing this keeping. It's not me keeping myself. It's God who is keeping me. Richard Baxter writes, the sanctuary that you have fled to is a safe one. If you fled to the sanctuary of God, if you fled to him, you fled to a safe sanctuary. You are safe in him. You're protected perfectly by God for the day of redemption. And there's nothing that you can do to mess that up. Sometimes people wonder if they could lose their salvation. You know, if salvation is by grace through faith, then like, isn't there something that, that I've got to continue to do in order to, to get that salvation? If we're protected by the power of God through faith, what if, I, what if I lose my faith? Here's the good news. God even protects your faith. <laughs> God protects your faith. Back in Luke chapter 22, you remember this passage. Peter was warned that Satan was after him, been asking permission for him, asking for him by name. I want Peter. <laughs> Imagine that. Satan's asking for him by name. I want Peter. And I want to sift him like wheat. You know that one who's boasting so much about, I'll never deny the Lord? Yeah, that's the one I, I want him. That's the one I want. I want to sift him like wheat. And Jesus doesn't say, and I told him no, that he can't. <laughs> what Jesus did say is, but I prayed for you. Yeah, Peter, you're going to be shaken down to the very core of who you are. But I've prayed for you, that your faith would not fail. And you know what God does for us, what Christ does for us? He does the same thing. Flip back over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Why did Peter not ultimately fall? It's because Christ prayed for him. Why will we not ultimately fall? It's because Christ prays for us. Christ intercedes for us. I'll actually back up to verse 31, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God doing what? Who also intercedes for us. Christ is praying for you that your faith would not fail. You're being protected by the power of God until that day of redemption. God's power protects our faith even from failing. Jude 24 and 25, don't ask me what chapter. Jude 24 and 25, 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. To make you stand. To make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. He is able to make you stand. He is able to keep you from stumbling so that your faith will not fail. God is the one who's doing this. Baxter again says, Christ has not bought you at so dear a price to trust you with yourself anymore. (laughs) If your happiness lay in your own hand as in Adam's, there would still be room to fear, but but it is in keeping the keeping of the faithful creator. Your, your life isn't in your hands anymore. It's in the keeping of the faithful creator. Christ doesn't trust you with yourself. <laughs> I'll keep you. And verse 6 says that it's in this that we greatly rejoice. We can rejoice in that. He doesn't say that your circumstances have changed. Peter doesn't say, you know, you can rejoice when it's all over, when the persecution is over, when the trials of life are over. You know, you can rejoice then. He says, no, in this you can greatly rejoice right now. You can have joy now because your hope is guaranteed. It's an even though kind of joy. Even though. Verse 6 says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though. Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. You still have the trials. But even though you have the trials, you can still rejoice. Verse 7 says, Our faith is more precious than gold, even though tested by fire. You're still tested, but you can still rejoice. Verse 8 says, And and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Even though you're not seeing Christ now, even though you're not seeing him now, you can still rejoice. It, It doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are in life. You can still rejoice, even though. So Peter writes this letter to this group of scattered, persecuted Christians. And even though he recognizes that the times may be difficult, that's no reason to restrain our praise and thanksgiving to our great God. We can still give God glory. Even though our present experience doesn't match the future reality. We can rejoice in what's been promised to us, that's guaranteed to us, that's reserved for us. I can rejoice in what's to come, and we can start rejoicing in that now. And Baxter, in his book, imagines what it will be like to enter into that blessed rest and look back at all the years that we refuse to focus on that future glory. When we finally get to glory, Baxter says, then the soul will cry out, is this the purchase that costs such a price as the blood of God? No wonder. Oh, blessed price, and three times blessed love that's so condescended to me. Have the gales of grace blown me into such a harbor? Is this the glory that the Scriptures spoke of and the ministers preached so much of? Now I see the Gospel indeed as good tidings. Have my mourning, my fastings, my heavy walking, my groaning, my complaints all come to this? Have my afflictions, sickness, languishing, fears of death come to this? Have all Satan's temptations in the world, scorns and jeers, come to this? Oh, vile nature that resisted so much and so long, such a blessing as this. How how long have I languished in my own depression and focusing on the here and now without thinking about what was to come? 
Oh, vile nature that resisted so much and so long. That soul will look back with astonishment at the flesh that demanded to be pleased. Did you make me question the truth of this glory? Did you draw me to distrust the Lord? Did you question the truth of Scripture that promised this rest? Well, my soul, are you now not ashamed that you ever questioned the love that brought you here? You suspected his love when you should have suspected yourself. Now you are convinced that the ways you called hard and the cup you called bitter were necessary. Your Lord intended sweeter ends that you would believe. Your Redeemer was saving you just as much, listen to this, your Redeemer was saving you just as much when he crossed your desires as when he granted them. Just as much when he broke your heart as when he bound it up. Oh, no thanks to your unworthy self for this crown you've received, but to Jehovah and to the Lamb be glory forever. And we will eternally be grateful. Right? We'll eternally be grateful. Why don't we start now? (laughs) Why don't we start now? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this text. And we thank you for the encouragement that it brings to us. Father, I pray that this would be a a source of thanksgiving and gratitude for us as we enter into this Thanksgiving season. Father, I know that there are many uh, bitter paths that we've walked uh, during this year, and uh, so many of us have dealt with hardship. Uh, But Father, I pray that these hardships would make us long for our eternal redemption, that it's guaranteed, that it's waiting, that it's reserved for us, that nothing that happens in this life will change what's happening on the other side of this life. Also, Father, I pray that you would cause our hearts to rejoice, and not just rejoice, but greatly rejoice, that we would be overflowing with gratitude because of what you've given to us. You've begotten us again, and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've given us a living hope. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.